Hello and welcome to Inside the Nudge Unit, the new podcast from the Behavioural Insights team. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Liz Costa. I'm a Senior Director at the Behavioural Insights team and I'll be your host today. We're launching Inside the Nudge Unit with a very special episode, a birthday episode if you will. Here at the Behavioural Insights team, we recently celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And to mark the occasion, we brought together four of the top experts in the world to talk about how the field of behavioural science has grown and developed over the past decade. And importantly, what should we all be looking out for as we use behavioural science to tackle the next decade's most pressing policy challenges? So let me introduce our guests. First up on our panel are Professor Richard Thaler and Professor Cass Sunstein. Richard and Cass co-authored the book Nudge in 2008, and together they sparked a movement that changed policy thinking around the world. Their work has been celebrated and recognised with the award of the Nobel Prize in Economics for Richard and the Holberg Prize for Cass. And we're so fortunate that each of them have continued to champion the development of behavioural science around the world. You might not know this, but their work was also the catalyst for the creation of the Behavioural Insights team back in 2010. That's why we've always been known as the Nudge Unit, a title we happily embrace. Cass and Richard are joined today by Dr. Maya Shankar, the Global Director of Behavioural Economics at Google. Maya's been critical in embedding behavioural science at the White House and in Silicon Valley. And making up the quartet is BIT's founder and CEO, Professor David Halpin. David's led the team since 2010, and he's been pivotal to the movement to incorporate behavioural science and greater empiricism into policymaking worldwide. Now, before we dive in, a couple of housekeeping points. Our guests know each other very well, and they're incredibly passionate about the developments in behavioural science. So this was not a short chat. But rather than break their flow, we're broadcasting the discussion in two parts. This is part one. Part two is also available from the same place you found this podcast, or you can find it at our website at www.bi.team. We recorded this discussion before the inauguration of President Biden, and since then, Cass Sunstein has joined the new administration as a senior counsellor at the Department of Homeland Security. Cass also unfortunately couldn't stay until the end of the recording, so you'll hear him pop out of the conversation partway through. Now on to our guests. I hope you enjoy it. So a pretty good place to start is surely about the origins of this. And I know you guys have talked about it plenty, but about the writing of the original nudge or libertarian paternalism as it started in a paper way back when. Um, and maybe um, Richard or Cass, maybe just kind of come from, like, when did you guys start working together? And when did it kind of evolve, right? I um, was a great admirer of Dick's work before I met him. And the reason was I had a friend who on the squash court told me that my very bad paper on departures from perfect rationality actually had a older sibling in a bad paper, according to my economist friend, by this economist named Richard Thaler. And I didn't know quite how to spell his last name, but I knew I was interested. So I looked up the paper and it was a spectacular paper toward a positive theory of consumer choice. So I greatly admired this paper, which had a big influence on how I thought about law for a couple of years. Then I heard Dick was coming to the University of Chicago. I don't know if he remembers this, but I wrote him a letter 
was probably really embarrassing and it's fawning. Dick doesn't really like fawning, but we had lunch notwithstanding that letter and we became immediate great friends. And basically at that time, he was working with Christine Joles on a paper on behavioral law and economics and inject some behavioral science and behavioral economics into economic analysis of law. And I was working on the same thing. And as he and Professor Joles were making progress at what for me was an exceptionally impressive substantive rate, but an exceptionally unimpressive temporal rate, I suggested if you don't do this paper after a few lunches, I kind of might. And he looked at me pityingly said, why don't you join us? And that's where our collaboration started. I guess before I turn to Richard, can I just ask you, one of the things I remember, I think, reading your work from many years ago was your analysis almost from a legal perspective, bringing in economics, not least around the value we put on a life. You know, and how this is expressed through a regulatory way. And I wonder, can I draw you a little bit on, certainly in Britain, it's very unusual to find a lawyer who's interested in economics, in fact, even interested in numbers, frankly. Well, so if you teach regulation and administrative law, you're exploring judicial scrutiny of what the Department of Transportation does, the Environmental Protection Agency does, Food and Drug Administration does. And to analyze those issues from a legal perspective without having a sense of what the underlying policy judgments are, it's basically impossible. Our Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer was a pioneer in transforming the area of administrative law, as it's called, into the area of administrative law and regulatory policy. And I was uh, a collaborator of Breyer relatively early on. So it was kind of natural to think about the value of a sophisticated life. I can't believe I uttered that crazy sentence. It was kind of <laughs> natural to about statistical life, but as one does. And here too, Dick was actually the pioneer, though I think the country he discovered of studying the value of statistical life, he's, he's not a big fan of, of the wine and food there anymore. So, Richard, we should, of course, ask you the same. Do you remember this early approach from, from Cass and what impressed you about his work? Presumably, it must have been something since you decided to write a book together. Well, Cass did get in touch with me, I think, even before I moved to Chicago. And we did meet and hit it off. And I figured out quite quickly that asking Cass to join this project that Christine Joles and I were working on would speed things up. And Cass has been speeding me up now for 20 years or so. And so we, we got to be friends and we worked on this one paper. And what led to Nudge was a conference at the University of Chicago where I was presenting a paper on Save More Tomorrow, the idea that Shlomo Benarzi and I came up with to help people increase their retirement saving by gradually increasing the saving rate and inviting them to commit themselves to that now and then do it later because people all have more self-control tomorrow than they do today. And we had gotten some data showing that this worked and I was presenting it at a, at a conference and uh, I had a discussant uh, named Casey Mulligan, who 
uh, I will note, worked on the Council of Economic Advisors during the current administration in the United States. And in comment, I would say his comments on the paper involved quite a bit of sputtering. And the last sputter was, but wait a minute, isn't this paternalism? Uh, because we were trying to help people. And I said, yeah, but there's no coercion. This is an opt-in policy. So I don't know, maybe it's some different kind of paternalism. I don't know, maybe libertarian paternalism. And a, a day or two later, Cass and I were having one of our periodic lunches. And I said, Cass, I told him the story. I said, I came up with an interesting phrase yesterday in this in this discussion, libertarian paternalism, I think that's a phrase that could piss off everybody. <laughs> and there's nothing I like better than that. And, um, you know, the rest is history. So, I mean, by way of talking of history, I mean, I remember we had, when I worked for Tony Blair, actually, in the strategy unit then, must have been 2001, 2002 even, it was before the Nobel Prize. And I asked him, is there anything you think is particularly interesting we should look at? And he, of course, specifically said, well, there is this kind of really interesting thing, this obscure paper on libertarian paternalism, which I think is really interesting. So, of course, we picked it up then. Now, the book obviously has gone on to be unbelievably influential and famous. And there are a couple of examples. You mentioned one in relation to Save More Tomorrow pensions. The other one that everybody knows, of course, is the famous canteen. But I wondered, um, Cass, if there's other examples which you feel particularly crystallize the essence of the idea kind of empirically that you think also are worth pulling out to embody it? Well, I'll tell you my favorite, and then I'll tell you what I think is the most impactful. So my favorite is a program in the United States by which poor children are automatically enrolled in free lunches and meal programs, lunches and breakfasts. And the challenge is that the program made generally available to kids had a limited take-up rate. So many young kids weren't getting a nutritious free meal to which they were legally entitled. And we switched it so that if the locality or the school knows they're eligible, they're just in. And the number now is in the vicinity of 15 million kids who are benefiting from this program or something like it annually. There was one little rule that I was involved in that involved homeless and immigrant children, among others. And the idea that an idea hatched over a lunch was relevant to a program that's getting kids who are really struggling as a strong candidate to being one's favorite. So that has a lot of emotion in it for me. Uh, the most impactful, I think, is fuel economy and energy efficiency regulations, which are not nudges, but they're behaviorally informed, where the idea is a mandate of fuel economy or energy efficiency helps consumers, because at the time of purchase, they're not as attentive as they might be to the economic savings. And there are cars all over my country, the United States, and refrigerators and clothes washers and microwave ovens that are delivering very substantial economic benefits to consumers, as well as reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. And without the behavioral foundation, it would be very hard to understand how to think about this kind of problem. Maybe, Richard, you might come on a similar question about things that stand out in your mind from knowledge, but also another issue, which is, do you think there are some things on reflection, of course, you've just rewritten a new edition of it, where you think the original nudge got it wrong, or the emphasis was off? Well... As you know, we've just uh, written a 
a substantial uh, revision of the book. So we've had a chance to think about it. And I don't think that there are any examples that we are embarrassed about in the original book. I don't think that there was anything where we said, oh, let's do X. And we now think with not X would have been substantially better. I think in hindsight, the choice of the title was a mixed blessing. So the title was not our idea originally. It was suggested by one of the dozens of publishers who turned us down and didn't want to publish the book, but said, you know, this libertarian paternalism, it reminds me of the word nudge, which is kind of a fun word. And we immediately jumped on that and thought that was a snappy title. And I think it was a snappy title and helped sell a lot of books. The downside of it is that if you think about what it is that we're about, I would like to think it's about choice architecture rather than nudges. And nudges make you think of what I would call tweaks, that all we're about is changing the words in some communication to make it more effective, or even changing the default, which can be very powerful. But I think the new version of the book makes it clearer that we think the big opportunities are when you take a, an overall view of, of the entire problem and say, all right, how can we improve the way this is structured? And I think the, the chapter that reflects this the most is the updated chapter on climate change, where we, we, we talk about, in our view, you simply have to start with getting the prices right, either a carbon tax or cap and trade. And if you don't do that, we are literally toast. But if, if you do that, then there's lots of opportunities for behavioral insights. But it's foolhardy to think that we're going to solve the problem with nudges. We're, we're not. And Richard, you also sort of mentioned that in relation to economic incentives. I thought there was a very interesting line in the new book, which you said, actually, you know, the key issue here is where you have a policy or instrument where humans would be affected by this change in choice architecture or something else, but econs wouldn't. And I think that's a very interesting definition, which is actually broader than nudge, because it does sweep into it things like actually economic instruments. So a well-known international example would be very, very small charges for plastic bags, which really shouldn't make much of a difference to most people, and certainly econs, but has huge impacts on actual behaviour. You just heard David talk about econs. This is a term used to describe the perfectly rational actor at the centre of much classical economic theory. And one of the major contributions of behavioural science has been defining a more human and more accurate version of that rational actor. In essence, one that looks and makes decisions a lot more like you and me. So I wonder if I could maybe cast you a little bit more on this about the limitations of this concept versus maybe as we step into how it was applied in the White House. Okay, so there's nudging, which involves changing choice architecture 
without changing material incentives or while affecting them really basically in such a tiny way that we're not affecting material incentives. Then there's behaviorally informed interventions, which is a much broader category. So we define a nudge as an intervention, which has an impact, but which doesn't change material incentives. So a GPS device nudges, a disclosure strategy nudges, a warning nudges, so does a change in the default, so long as it's costless to change back. A very small tax on, let's say, use of plastic bags uh, has a much greater impact than a very small bonus for non-use of plastic bags. That's a behavioral insight that has policy relevance, but a tax would have to be really, really small to be a nudge. And there's nothing in the English language that separates one small number from another small number. But something like a material cost, even if it's small, I would characterize as a behaviorally informed policy. A fuel economy standard is behaviorally informed insofar as its foundation is a judgment that consumers aren't taking on board the full assortment of characteristics of a product in deciding what to buy. And that that is a behaviorally informed strategy, but it's certainly not a nudge. If you do something to promote, let's say, a response to smoking, like cigarette taxes, that could be behaviorally informed. It might be a response to internalities, the cost people impose on their future selves, but a stiff cigarette tax would not be a nudge. Something about the design of places where cigarettes are sold, that could be a nudge in the sense that it doesn't impose material incentives. But I think one thing that's very cool about the last 10 years and that Dick's points and yours, David, get at is that there's a repertoire of policies of which nudges are a part that partake of behavioral science in different ways. So maybe now's a good time to talk start about how it moves into policy. I mean, that was one of the remarkable things about this as a book and a body of work. And in fact, all three of you really helped to make that happen. Cass, I remember coming to see you in the White House in 2009, actually, which is before the 2010 election in the UK context, to try and find out what you were doing. And you were very good to spend some time explaining. But maybe you could just talk us through a little bit about how this entry into the White House worked and and the extent to which you felt able to translate these ideas, not only from Nudge, of course, but into policy. So President Obama had many priorities. They overlap with President-elect Biden's. One is climate change, and President Obama has a phrase, better is good. So the thought was, what could we do with respect to climate change that would be better? And one was to redesign the fuel economy label so that it gives people more clarity about the environmental effect and the economic cost of a fuel-inefficient vehicle. That was one idea. Another idea was energy efficiency standards which President Obama was very keen on. And we did a bunch of them, which as noted, were backed both by nudging in the sense of labels that gave people relevant information and by mandates. Uh, With respect to helping consumers in the midst of a financial crisis and after, the credit card law has a bunch of nudges in it, which are designed to inform consumers about things like late fees and overuse fees, And it also has things a little bit more aggressive than nudges designed to save costs. With respect to anti-poverty policies, a great deal was done under 
President Obama's direction with respect to simplifying programs so as to reduce sludge and to make things easier for people, and in some cases to take advantage of automaticity. The Dodd-Frank, our financial reform legislation, which produced regulations by our consumer bureau, had as a slogan, know before you owe, where the basic idea was to make sure that consumers weren't unknowingly getting into things that would make their lives really go worse. So there's a recent number from the Trump administration, actually, which is that the benefits of regulations under Obama Net benefits are on the low end, under 50 billion euro. That's a, a lowball estimate. And a chunk of that 100 billion in net benefits are savings to consumers, environmental benefits, health and safety benefits that resulted from nudges or other behaviorally informed interventions. Maya, now may be a good time to bring you in. Um, now, you came to the White House a little bit later, and maybe you can talk about what you you know, how you operate in a slightly different way, but also the extent to which Cass has sort of prepped the ground. Maybe you can just talk us through that. Well, it's an understatement to say he prepped the grounds. He was the ground. So I, yeah, it was interesting. I was just finishing up a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience in 20, I believe it was like, yeah, 2013. And I I remember this moment I was in the basement of a fMRI laboratory. So it's a windowless basement and I think my seventh MRI subject had come in for the day. And I remember peering at the, into this dude's brain. And I hadn't even had a conversation with him. So here I am prying into the inner workings of his brain. And I don't know what his middle name is or whether he has a family. And I remember thinking, I feel like the order of operations is wrong here in terms of my temperament and the things that motivate me in life, namely working closely with other people and and working on teams and whatnot. So I realized a neuroscience path was probably not going to be the right one for me. But I also remember thinking, well, what the heck does a a neuroscience postdoc do, right? Like, what are the job options for someone like them? And fortunately for me, I was was home on holiday and talking with my old undergraduate advisor, Lori Santos. And she told me about this person, Cass Sunstein, who is doing incredible work around the school lunch program. So the explanation you just heard from him about changing the default so that millions and millions of children were now enrolled in the program who hadn't been before. And I just remember having this this light bulb moment of like, oh my gosh, first of all, what a compassionate application of the best insights from our field. And this man is literally changing lives, right, uh, by, by using the insights from this field. And I remember one feeling extremely inspired by that potential, but also feeling like I possibly had no place in that world, right? I had no policy background, you know, no credentials in in that space whatsoever. And I remember Lori uh, told me, oh, you should just send Cass an email. And I was like, who just sends Cass an email? It's a very intimidating prospect for someone like me. But I sent an email and I remember I put her name in the subject line. My hope was that her name might catch his attention and lead him to open open the email. And I remember just saying, look, I'm so inspired by the work you did in government. It would be amazing if I could do the, tra- I could engage in the translation of behavioral science into policy, not necessarily in the White House, but even in state or local government, right? I was just really energized by that prospect. And I remember Cass wrote, Cass, who doesn't know me, obviously, writes back to my email in like three and a half femtoseconds and says, 
oh, this is so wonderful. Yes, I can connect you with President Obama's science advisor and his deputy. Send me your CV and uh, an explanation of what it is you hope to achieve when you're in the White House, and I'll pass you along. And so at that point, when I when I ended up emailing the, the White House advisors, I put Cass's name in the subject line, recommendation from Cass Sunstein. So basically, I was just trying to buoy my chances or, or increase my chances with, with these incredible people. So fortunately for me, I connected with uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and I was entering just as Cass was leaving. So he had obviously been the head of ORIRA and had really set uh, the the foundation upon which we even thought about doing this work in government. And my my goal when I came in was to build an interagency team, so baking behavioral scientists in you know, various parts of government, right? Health in, in, in the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Education. Uh, obviously, we built a central team within the General Services Administration. And the idea was to try to motivate agencies to adopt not just behavioral insight strategies, but also experimental methods. So trying to get them to actually use RT, RCTs uh, to measure the, the impact of their insights. And so over time, uh, we we successfully built this team. It was very uh, scrappy in the beginning. We didn't have a budget. We didn't have a mandate. Uh, we just tried to find a, a way to make things work. But then we were so excited and, and so thrilled when President Obama signed an executive order, as you mentioned early on in 2015, that formalized the behavioral science team and issued a directive to different agencies that basically was, was you know, detailed guidance around how to, to use these insights. So, Maya, do you want to just talk us through a practical example, maybe to contrast it? Because there was Cass, and we'll cut back to him in a minute, but was essentially often using executive orders and changing regulations in various ways, often uh, tracking their impact. But you were using literally experimental methods, which because we were also trying to do in the UK and elsewhere. But maybe you could talk us through an actual example to bring it kind of to life. Yeah, definitely. Why don't I give you two quick ones that show kind of the range of, of work that we did. So, one of the first projects that we worked on, and, and this was during our proof of concept phase, where we were simply trying to show government that they should, you know, invest in our team and help us hire behavioral scientists to make progress on this vision, was with the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. So we were trying to motivate vets to take advantage of an education and employment benefit that they were um, entitled to upon returning back to the United States after their time overseas serving in the military. And the VA had very little budget. Uh, they they could only send one email to veterans uh, to try to market this program. And so basically what they told us is, we've got this one email. You can do with it what you want, but that's all we've got. So we ended up changing just one word in the email. Um, instead of telling vets that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. And, you know, this was a, a version of the endowment effect, right? We know that people value things more when they, they own them and then maybe presumably when they feel they've earned them too, right? And that was uh, what we were hoping to test. And importantly, we structured this as an A-B test. And this was something that the VA had never done in its history was to do a, a simple A-B testing experiment uh, over email. And I remember it took eight months for us to set up the apparatus to even allow for that kind of testing. And, and quite charmingly, the VA threw a pizza party when they when they launched this experiment because again, it was the it was the first of its kind. 
And we found that that one word change led to a 9% increase in access to the benefit. And that was, again, a really elegant, simple proof point that we could we could show our, our leadership and our agency colleagues to try to motivate them uh, to fall suit. The other example, because I think this reveals, you know, the complexity of working in, in the government had to do with uh, the fact that military service members were not automatically enrolled in the uh, IRA, so the the federal uh, retirement savings plan, unlike their you know c- civilian peers who are automatically enrolled. And obviously, as we know from uh, all the work in the nudge space, uh, when you engage in automatic enrollment, right, you see sky high uh, en- enrollment rates. But I think in the military, it was closer to around like uh, the numbers, probably around like forty or fifty percent. Now, from a policy perspective at the time, obviously our our North Star was automatic enrollment. But there were a number of factors that prevented us from actually going all the way to that end goal. Um, and we knew that it was not going to be achievable uh, in the time we had, and also just given the, the political climate and, uh, again, a number of a very reasonable policy concerns around automatically enrolling service members. So what we did instead is we implemented an active choice. So now when military service members would transfer to a new base as part of their regular initiation, right? So when they're getting drug and alcohol counseling, when they're signing different forms, when they're reading various disclaimers, we we pushed in a sheet uh, that basically told service members about the value of saving for retirement. And so they were able to implement this at, in several bases across the country. And again, it led to a significant increase in, in enrollment rates. Uh, so those are two examples. And, and I think, again, I think It was so important for us to be flexible uh, with the tools that we had because, of course, we faced so many constraints. So in the meantime, Richard, what were you doing in this? You decided not to go into the White House. I know you were helping us a lot in London and elsewhere, but um, how much were you getting drawn into it? Well, I I think there were. I had much more hands-on with you guys, but you know, my my role was to talk to Cass uh, and Maya uh, and you um, and, you know, the role of Kibitzer is, uh, uh, you know, Danny Kahneman always says that my best quality is that I'm lazy. And I dispute that that's my best quality, but I don't deny the lazy part. So um, chatting with uh, you and Cass and Maya about uh, what you're thinking about and trying to help was um, I had the same role in all in, in all of these uh, different collaborations. Could I cut back to you? Maybe a couple of questions, really. One is, on reflection, I mean, I certainly speak of myself as a, you know, in the policy world, I have lots of things where I feel like I wasn't able to get them across the line and I wish I could. But I wonder if you might want to talk to some of those. And also, there's this interesting question about, you know, the trade-off between sometimes moving swiftly on a policy judgment, um, where you actually have limited evidence, but you're taking a view, versus the ability to run a formal trial. And I wonder if you might speak to that as well. 
Well, one regret I have is that the timing of our climate change initiatives was, I think, not ideal. We had a sequence which meant that the suite of initiatives would end in 2016. And I was had some involvement with almost all of them, even though I left before we had a plan. And that made them vulnerable to the successor administration. So in retrospect, I, I regret that timing. Uh, that wasn't my decision. It was a collective decision, but I think it probably wasn't ideal. In terms of what we're talking about basically here, I came late to the religion of sludge reduction. Liz here with a quick definition for those of you who are less familiar with behavioral science. Sludge is the hassle and friction we have to wade through to get things done. Whereas nudges make particular behaviors easier and more likely, sludge makes them harder and it deters us from our goals. My office had to approve of every collection of information that the U.S. government does, which means that whenever the government asked people to fill out forms or to do paperwork, whether it was for student visas or for economic benefits or for health or for uh, small businesses trying to get started, we basically had to say yes to everything. And I came late to the idea that this is a top priority item. Uh, I should have early on thought, this is not only time, it's not only a time tax, but it's like a wall between human beings and something that can turn their lives around. So I did get religion basically in my third year, I think, and we did some things that weren't trivial, but not nearly enough. And because we saw, even in real time, farmers or people who have mental health problems or people who are old and can't really navigate a system of paperwork, we saw that and we didn't go hard at it. And it was partly a bandwidth problem that I faced, but I, I much regret that and hope that the successor administration will do, will do well on that count. In terms of waiting for evidence versus going with a policy, uh, my bias would be that there is no tomorrow. And if there's an issue of you know, human importance where you have, let's say, 60% clarity that something's going to work, if it's not that expensive, go for it. And, and, and don't wait. If you have 60% clarity that it's going to work and 40% clarity is going to make the situation much worse, then hesitate. And so the old idea of expected value, which as a lawyer, I understand only a little bit. I think that's, that's the right framework for thinking about optimal delay. I thought, of course, one of the things you did bring through was the Paperwork Act, right? Uh, which we, we were kind of admiring of. And I was also very admiring, I remember bringing it back to the UK around the, your regulatory assessments were not only on business impact, which ours tend to be focused on, but did also seem to think about consumers and elsewhere. But I wonder, one of the bridges between those is to try and put down certain kind of data sets or gathering, which sets up the argument for the future. So, um, of course, one of our, our mutual colleagues is Elder Shafir and his incredible work on scarcity and so on, which suggests kind of cognitive taxes, which fall very unevenly across the population. And I should say, in the UK and most other governments, we didn't do this stuff where we were really tracking people's time. But it was a plausible hypothesis. Would, these actually are quite substantial. But without the documentation of the data, my or anyone else will struggle to say, well, actually, you know. So were there 
areas where you felt like you were able to put down some markers, even if the evidence wasn't big enough then? Smiling a little bit because the information and collection budget of the United States and the Paper Reproduction Act, that all predated my time. But I took it really seriously. And if you look at the number of pages in the information collection budget of the United States, Dick will uh, get a kick out of this. There's a certain number of years where the pages in the information collection budget start spiking. It starts being several hundred pages. Yes, those were my years. Is this an irony that the Paperwork Production Act report is actually spending a lot of time on paper? I hope not. It's because we're really serious at trying to do an audit of the degree of sludge the system was imposing. And this is an opportunity for cutting stuff. And with respect to your point, with hospitals and uh, nurses and doctors, one of our initiatives cut the equivalent of basically a billion dollars in annual or euros, a little less than a billion in annual costs on the system just by taking the stuff away. And, th and that is an initiative that it's good it happened, but there's so much more to be done in terms of, uh, of tackling the problem of scarcity, Eldar's idea, and of doing it in a way that's targeted to those demographic groups for whom the scarcity issue is especially problematic. It may be because they're old, it may be because they're sick, it may be because they have less education, maybe because they're poor and really busy trying to get through the day. Were there particular studies which you would have loved to have done um, also in your time? I wish we'd done much more work in, in this domain, to your point, David, about getting clarity about where the sludge burden is hitting particular people particularly hard. So there's both a welfare question on balance, is it justified, but there's also a question of distributive justice. And this is so doable. Was there other thing you'd like me to ask about, particularly maybe on the climate issue and some of the new issues in the book? How about that? Okay, so thank you for that. So Dick and I have spent a lot of time on the climate chapter and we're not done. I'll tell you something I'm particularly excited about today. There's an initiative in California called Green by Default, by which a number of municipalities, 16 at last count, are automatically enrolling people in renewables. It's about 850,000 people. And the number of people who are opting out is really low. It turns out in California that to be in renewable energy is to spend about eight euro more a month on your energy bill. But there are parts of the world where it's to spend zero more on your energy bill, and it's cutting a lot of tons of carbon emissions. And Dick and I believe that getting the prices right is the most important thing, the essential thing. But I'm hopeful that this tool, this nudge tool of automatically enrolling people in renewable energy can be used all over the world as a technique for simultaneously cutting greenhouse gas emissions and reducing air pollution. Can I ask you one other question? Um, you were kind enough also to come to the UK a few times, I remember, because we were very well. Um, perhaps not as often as Richard, but we were always happy to see you. Um, and I wonder what was your impression of the work being done in the UK Behavioural Insights team or indeed by other teams elsewhere? Were there, there things that particularly struck you which you thought, actually, that was neat, we should go and steal that or... Or maybe things you tricks you thought we were missing. Ten years on, it's uh, clear that if there's a Nobel for applied behavioral science, the UK's behavioral insights team gets it, and there isn't a close second. It's also clear that the team has changed the world, meaning it's inspired people 
all over the world, including at the World Health Organization, where I'm working now, and the United Nations, and with too many countries to mention. And I think what's made you spectacularly successful, if I may say, is two things. And Maya has done much of the uh, same kind of thing on the U.S. side, is combining experimental competence and brilliance. That's number one. So making sure that experiments and compilation of data is part of the policy process. That's new, and that's happening every day. And second is having a kind of policy slash political savvy. So as to know both what would be most impactful and what would kind of fit with a, a system of change that's feasible. And, and that combines the academic, you know, amazingness of great academics with the political uh, understanding of people who know no academics. And uh, people are trying to duplicate that. Maya did an amazing job at, at that herself, and the Office of Evaluation Sciences is right now doing much of that. We're seeing some of it in uh, multiple countries, but uh, the UK is setting the standard. Very good. Cass, I know you've got to drop out. Um, so I almost feel like we should stop there. That was an incredibly generous remark. Um, but would there be any headline advice you'd give to I don't know, incoming administrations in any part of the world where you think actually they need to learn from the past decade? What would be top of your list? Thinking big. So what Dick and I have talked a lot about for the second edition of Nudge is that there's an impression that's false that nudges are tweaks. It's as if our title of our book was Tweaks. And there are, are things which many academics are emphasizing and some policymakers, which are in the nature of tweaks. Now, because better is good, tweaks, if they improve people's lives, hooray for that. But I know, David, you've been focused much on this, and me too, thinking of domains where the magnitude of the gain isn't 2%, but it's 30%. And we're in turn, turning that into human terms it's like a lot of lives are saved, or a lot of illnesses are prevented, or a lot of people are, are le- a lot less poor. Thank you, Cass. We're going to let you go precisely on time. That was incredibly helpful. And thanks. To see, great to see you, and great to see you, my friends, Dick and Maya. At least I get to hear from you. So that's the end of part one of this special edition of Inside the Nudge Unit. Part two will be available soon from whichever podcast platform you downloaded this from, or you can also find a link in the notes with this podcast or at our website at www.bi.team. There you can also find lots more information on the first 10 years of the Behavioural Insights team. That's at bi.team forward slash bit10. I'm Liz Costa. Thank you for listening to Inside the Nudge Unit. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, tell your friends, and we hope you return for more Inside the Nudge Unit podcasts soon.